We're in our study of the imprecatory Psalms, and we're in Psalm 139. We've been here for uh, several, actually three weeks, I believe. Uh, We've gone through each one of these points independently, uh, the outline of of this psalm. And we looked at verses 1 to 6, how God knows us intimately. And then we looked at how God is with us constantly. And then last week we were with God made us wonderfully. uh, And we looked at that text on really the marvelous works of God in the womb and as well just how he holds life. And then tonight we're going to look at what we call the imprecatory part of this psalm and it's God judges righteously and we're going to pick it up here in uh, verse 19 and go down to verse 24. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And let's have a word of prayer. Lord, again, we open up your book. We thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I thank you that tonight we can look at this portion of this great psalm. Help us to understand it. Help us to truly do as the psalmist said, to be searched out by you. And Lord, try us, know us. And Lord, if there's wickedness or evil or things we shouldn't be doing or things we shouldn't be thinking or attitudes or any of those things, Lord, that are sin, may you reveal those things and and certainly make us more like Christ. We yield ourselves to you tonight afresh. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalmist uh, starts in this section. and Again, he transitions through this psalm. And he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. <laughs> That's the imprecatory part. It's a prayer and it's a call for judgment. And as I've said before, as we've gone down through these many different psalms that have this kind of language in it, um, sometimes it makes you a little uncomfortable. Are we to pray for God to slay the wicked? And it sounds sort of contrary to the most of the prayer meetings I've attended and the places I've been and how the ways I've been taught to pray and And yet, we see these kind of prayers and these kind of songs, and that's really how this would have been sung, would have been sung prayerfully. Uh, I don't know what it would have sounded like, but it was a call for judgment, and it was a call directed to God for him to do that. And that's where he says, oh God. And I think the key to these imprecatory prayers is that we are looking for the Lord to do right, and he always does right. And included in that rightness and his perfect righteousness is judgment. And so when we pray, um, not my will be done, but your will be done, and we pray prayers like this in accordance to his will, it's fine. We are in agreement with God, and there are those things. Now, the Bible has lots to say about, in the New Testament too, how we ought to treat our enemies and how we ought to pray for our enemies. Um, In this case, these are the enemies of God. And as the psalmist lays out for us, he describes them and he says, you bloodthirsty men. 
And literally, you men of blood is how it is written in the Hebrew. Um, the world is a very violent place, isn't it? And it's filled with violence. Uh, there are different kinds of violence. And the violence that is referred to here is certainly a, an evil that is uh, perpetrated against someone else. Now, I do believe that there's a righteousness in violence if you are meeting evil with good. And the good has to do that at times. And otherwise, you would have no law and order or civil order in the world if you did not have either uh, militaries that would meet that and defend the you know for good or law enforcement or anybody even an individual to stand in the gap for someone else is a right thing the bible talks about that and teaches that but these kind of people they aren't that people that have had to be violent to save someone else or those kind of things but they have purposely taken lives or they have shed blood and we looked before about shedding innocent blood and god has never ever been for that and it doesn't by the way god is grieved over bloodshed in general it is not what it was intended for in the beginning when he made adam and eve Um, he It wanted them to live in a garden that was perfect in every way and for them to trust him in that garden and to follow him. But when sin entered into the picture, so did bloodshed. In the very next generation, you have Cain killing Abel and shedding his blood. And God saw it and it grieved God, didn't it? And it always grieves God to see people harm one another in doing that. So just keep that in mind. Anyways... Uh, we're reminded that God judges in righteousness. And that is in keeping with numerous passages in the Bible, including in the New Testament. Um, I will go, though, to Isaiah 11. And here in Isaiah, another statement of righteousness is, But with with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That is prophetic. I think, I don't know if Ron Grossman was in this passage this morning. He was in Isaiah, and I think it was 11, but uh, for a moment, or he quoted from it. But in that section, he's talking about here a messianic uh, passage about someday Messiah, Jesus, will come back, and he is going to... Uh, set in order the evil that has gone on and those that have sought really uh, they're put their hearts against him and you can read in the book of revelation of that um, well series of battles in revelation but culminating with what we call the battle of armageddon and he indeed will slay the wicked and that is something that is resolved for god for the lord Psalm 119.115 says this, Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. I think in the contrast to that verse, it's easy to talk about evil out there, but it's a little harder for the people who call themselves followers of God to say, um, Depart from me, you evildoers, but here it is, for I will keep the commandments of my God. I think here is a line in the sand, so to speak, that for believers, we ought always to be in obedience to God. Period. Don't compromise that. Don't go and do or meet evil for evil in that way. That's a cycle of vengeance. And remember, we already looked at this in these studies. Vengeance belongs to God. That's what the Bible says. And he will repay. Um, And we're not talking again here of 
uh, we are talking about in a judicial way. And that verse in Isaiah, talking about the one who will judge perfectly. That's what equity means here. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And that word is tossed around very, very loosely in our world today of politics. And uh, you hear people saying, we're doing this for equity and diversity and those kind of things. And equity in the mind of of people who are not, in this case, uh, many cases, following the Lord, is this, that I'm going to go and covet what that person has and take it. And that makes it equal or equity, right? And kind of fair. It, It isn't fair. And uh, the true fairness that will happen someday is going to be decided by God. And it'll be perfectly fair. Because he's always right. Uh, Psalm uh, 139 verse 20. The next verse. It says, For they, that's the evildoers, speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. And... I think that that's important to note that as he lays out the reasons why they should be, uh, that God should slay them and their evil and their wickedness, and that these are harsh words, but remember, for a righteous, holy God, who he is perfect in his love, but he is also perfect in his hatred. And uh, this is interesting when we, if we get down to it tonight, I'm hoping to uh, do a little side study on that, but um, this goes with it. He says, your enemies take your name in vain. In, in the Hebrew, uh, well, actually it's not in the Hebrew, your name in vain, but they take holy things in vain. I think it's the Septuagint, which was the Jews' own translation of their Hebrew Bible. Um, they say they take your city's names in vain. In other words, they blasphemed against the holy hill in Jerusalem and the temple. They blasphemed against God in doing so. And that is very much something that God holds very, well, first of all, it's a great sin. You, you know, most, I, I think in our society today, and I was there once too, as I grew up here in the valley, we swore a lot in the Lord's name. I, I mean, and I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong because I was taught that, the Ten Commandments. I had to memorize the Ten Commandments, and I knew it was wrong to take the Lord's name in vain, but we, I did it. You say, we did it, I did it. You might not have. But I, I did. And it, I think it's in the rebellious heart, whether it's a religious rebellious heart or, or a, you know atheist heart, it's in that heart to swear against God in our sin. And God will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. Right? That's what the Bible says. And it's something we ought to be reminded of. And the psalmist here reminds, as he prays this, that the biggest accusation is that they've taken the Lord in the holy things and they've taken that and counted it as nothing that's what vain means to make it worthless and it's interesting because um those are often the swear words that people use you know the, they use the lord's name and the name of the most precious name that has ever been spoken the name of jesus how many people will say that name today and they will do so just in blasphemy and Many of them, I don't think they think in their hearts that that it's actually blasphemy. They've really never even thought about it, probably. It's just something that they do. But they certainly don't take it very, uh, esteem it very highly. So it's, it's worthless. It's vain. That's what vain means. And they, they do that. And he says, your enemies take your name in vain. 
I think we've got to be careful about that for sure. Um, in the book of Jude, with a little letter to Jude in the New Testament, you have the, well, Jude writes about apostates. And he writes about the characteristics of apostates, those who claim one thing, but they actually are something else, right? They might look on the outside, initially anyways, as believers, but inside, and their actions betray them, their heart betrays them. And in Jude verse 10, this is one of the things that Jude describes of the, uh, these apostates. He says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And my friends, it's easy to speak evil of something you don't know. And by the way, if you're speaking evil of something that isn't evil, it's slander. Beware of that. And it's easy to jump on the bandwagon sometimes and throw out names and call different people this and that, and we don't even know the facts sometimes. That's what these people do. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and he's saying, you know, like an animal. An animal is driven by their instincts, and they don't even know what is going on sometimes because they're driven for that and uh, they don't think and sometimes in our sin we act like brute beasts out there just rummaging through the woods looking for our prey or driven by desires that that an animal can't think through right you see ever you ever see two uh, bull moose in the rut and they are just fighting as they go and that bull moose will fight to his death to make sure that he's able to chase after a cow moose somewhere and will do that. And I don't think they give much thought to that. It's just instinct. And I guess that's the way God made the animal kingdom that way. But we're not like that. We are beings that are able to reason and think and, and go beyond that. And we also know a moral code that God has given us, not only stamping it in our hearts as people, but explicitly telling us more through specific revelation of the bible in these things they corrupt themselves you say well who corrupted them they did themselves and that's where what sin does we can blame it on someone else and everybody wants a victim right be a victim but the reality is uh, i corrupted myself when i before i knew the lord and sin always does that whether you know the lord or don't know the lord it's that way He says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I thought of that today as I was reading that, and I'm we're pretty warm today. We're almost like 70 degrees again today um, here in the area. I think it got to like 68 or something. And if you just kind of plunked me down outside and I said how it felt, it felt more like sometime maybe in August or September on a cool of the evening, you know. But you look at the trees and they tell you a different story. They look dead and everything's brown and all that kind of stuff. And And, you know, sometimes... The fruit betrays what we really are. And in, back in Psalm 139, when the psalmist there is talking about the wicked and the evildoers and what they do, it's very much like that. You know them by their fruit or the lack thereof, right? 
Then he says, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Foaming up their own shame. Search me, O God. We sang that hymn tonight. Where once I burned with shame. Right? It talks about rekindle that fire within. Where once I burned with shame. You know, there was a conviction of sin that came in my life when I was about 18 years old. A a very heavy conviction. And I understood that I was a sinner. And for, I I had been ashamed before when I had done something wrong, got caught. But it was another thing when all of a sudden I realized that a holy God knew me. And he knew me better than I knew myself. And I realized I was naked before him in my sin. And it was then that I realized, Lord, take it. And he did. I asked him to forgive my sin. He did. And, and he offers that to us, doesn't he? He goes on talking about these wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's quoting from Enoch. And here we have this prophecy that is revealed later in the word of God uh, about Enoch. He was only the seventh generation from Adam. And he was prophesying his day before the flood of a generation that was committing great evil before God. By the way, in Genesis 6, right, we have the flood event. And in, I think it's Genesis 6, 6 talks about how God it grieved him that he had made man. Because of the evil that man was engaged in and doing. And I often think about that even in our world today. How much evil is going on and how much it grieves God. And sin always grieves the Lord. Verse 21. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Now these are... Rhetorical questions, the answer is, is yes, I hate them, and yes, I loathe them. And what is going on here when the psalmist says that, and those are strong words like hate, right, and loathe. Is it possible to have a holy hatred and a holy righteousness? And I say yes, because the Bible talks about that. And we'll look at it here a little bit further in, uh, at the, we get down through these verses and I'll kind of break out on that. But a hatred, now, uh, that word hate that you see there in the Hebrew means to hate, scorn, or decrease in status. And it's an idea, an inner quality or an inner feeling uh, position that a person would take when they look at someone and say, like, I hate them, I scorn them, I, they, they decrease in my status. They aren't heroes, but they're my enemies. And that's the kind of hatred that is spoken of there. And it can be, by the way, uh, hatred can be misplaced. And there can be a hatred that is the most often, really, hate that fills the heart that is not holy. All right. Um, in this case, it is connected with the hatred for sin. And just so you understand that. It isn't that God looks at man and says, I hate them. But he, in his position, and there are verses that talk about hate for a very strong position, only really God can truly perfectly hate all right he can also be perfectly jealous 
He can be perfectly uh, loving, on the other hand, and, you know, and because he is a perfect God, and he can have those attributes and do so perfectly in every way. One is not better or less than the other. I guess the word attribute isn't a good, really, word because it means that there are better qualities than others, and God is perfect in all his ways. So his perfections, all right? And he can hate in that way. Uh, but the psalmist comes alongside and in uh, hopefully from the spiritual perspective of things and saying, don't I hate the same things you do, Lord? And those that hate you with a perfect hatred, he uses the word loathe. A loathe is, uh, the Hebrew word means to feel disgust. And you know that one of the biggest problems today, I think, with believers, and, it, and I, I, I will be honest with you, the longer I live in this world, the harder I get sometimes to the things that are going on around us because you just see it so often or hear it so often that it doesn't turn my stomach like it used to. And I have to stop and say, God, till up that, that hard ground in that heart of mine because we ought to loathe sin. And we ought to have a holy kind of hatred towards things that would be against God and displease God. First and foremost in our life. And that's where this psalm leads when he says, you know, look at me. Know me, right? That's where we'll, we'll come to that. And I understand that anytime uh, a believer, uh, you really can't, how would I put it? You can't really serve the enemy and serve God right you can't and it ought to be some kind of loathing in that like you if you want to go and serve the enemy of god or be united with them in some way it will always be to your demise it will unless there's repentance in that uh second chronicles chapter 19 is the story it's a chapter 18 is the death of ahab was ahab a good king or a bad king bad what was he known for like what he and Jezebel, what did they do? They killed Nabal, innocent blood. Um, they did other things in, about the worship. Were they worshiping God? No, they were worshiping Baal. Jezebel, Jezebel that's where she brought in Baal worship from the Phoenicians. And um, you have a lot of other things. They, they, they were, it was wrong. So you have the southern king in Judah, Jehoshaphat, um, who goes up and he unites with Ahab to fight against the Syrians. Okay, that's chapter 18. And Ahab dies in that. Some archer just blindly shoots an arrow and he hits the king between his armor points and the king dies. Uh, and it says in, I think it's in the Kings, uh, 1 Kings 22, maybe somewhere in there, uh, the dogs licked his blood up. That was prophetic from Elijah, wasn't it? Uh, and, but here in this passage, it doesn't talk about that. But the, this is what I want to look at. Right after that event, then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Boy, that's pretty harsh. Now, and it goes on a little bit further, I think it's in that next verse, to say that 
Jehoshaphat had done some good things. One of the things was he had destroyed the wooden images and he had done some other things. But he was his sin and his the, the issue of wrath that had come upon him was that he or was he was being warned about is that he was loving those that hate God. Be careful. Even if you're a king, you can do that. And it brought about um, brought about problems there for the, the countries or the divided nation, right? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And there's that word perfect hatred. And it, it means in a complete hatred, um, something that's final and to the outermost part. They're, and so the psalmist is saying, those that hate you, O Lord, I hate every part of them. And again, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? And you go, wow. By the way, it kind of goes against the... I hear people say there's good in everybody. Well, the, the Bible actually says there isn't. We, we actually, in our sin, in, while we're enemies with God, there's nothing that actually is good in us. Now, can we do good things? Sure. There's people out there that they're not believers, and they do good things. They help people. They do different things, and they do things based on a moral code or some following of something. But the aspect of those good works are even really not done in faith and that the bible says is sin and sin is an affront to god and so this holy hatred that i've talked about is a complete kind of hatred and he if you just ended this psalm right here i would think like oh wow that's pretty harsh because what goes on next right after the psalmist says this is he he turns inward and looks at his own heart it's easy to say, I hate sin. It's a harder thing to say, now look inside of me, Lord. Because that's where that leads. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And then he goes on, see if there's any wicked way in me. But the word to search means just that, explore, to search out. Have you invited God into your heart as a believer, not for salvation, but later in your walk, to say, God, explore my heart. See if there's any, anything in it. First of all, he says, explore my heart and, and try me. In other words, see what I really am. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. That's a good first examination, right? And then we were in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and it said, let a man examine himself. That's at the Lord's table. I think that's for, for sin that might be in our life. And this is the same idea from the Old Testament. Know me. Uh, explore my heart. Have you invited God to explore your heart lately? That's a little unsettling. Because then he might know those little places that, by the way, he already knows those places that you're keeping from him, if you are. Uh, I don't know your hearts. Um, but we are constantly, I, I really think the Christian life is a life of repentance. And it's a constant light, uh, a life under the light of God in the word of God. And as he reveals things to us, we need to keep short accounts with God. Don't let those little corners of the heart get darker and darker, right? Invite him in. And then he says, try me. And that means to test metals by melting. Melt my heart, God. Melt it and see what it's really like. You know, you can, 
you can take certain things and and uh, fake them. Like I, I suppose you could take a lead bar and paint it with gold paint and give it to somebody and say, here's a whole bar of gold, you know, and they might say, wow, that's pretty heavy. I mean, unless you're really weighing things and looking at it, but outside it looks like gold. I, I suppose you could even coat the outside with actual gold. And to someone that doesn't understand how to look at the inner makeup at the elemental level, um, they, that might pass as gold until you scratched it a little bit or whatever, or even better as you melted it. You melt it and you realize this thing isn't gold. It's, it's made of a fairly, you know, inexpensive metal. And really, he's asking the Lord to know his heart and to melt it down and refine it in his fire. And really, sometimes the only way that happens is when we are put to the fire. When things are going really well, uh, I have a tendency not to really get down to the nitty-gritty of my soul. But when all of a sudden you you hit, hit my life with some pain somewhere or discomfort or worry or other things, now I have, to, I have to trust the Lord, walk by faith. I wish it was easier than that. But that's, a, that's really how it happens. And then he goes on and know my anxieties. And I, I like that word because that's exactly how it's translated. It, it's a Hebrew word meaning disturbing or disquieting thoughts. You have any disturbing or disquieting thoughts in, in your mind tonight? Or anytime it happens to me in the middle of the night. Sometimes you know, I wake up and I whoa, what am I gonna do? Or I'm worried. Or this has happened. And a lot of times it's nothing I can even fix. Take my anxiety, Lord. The world is filled with people running to and fro, worrying about things, and they don't know the Lord. We who know the Lord should be able to give those over to Him. But you know what? You, don't, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes we don't ask. God, take my anxiety. By the way, I'm thankful. When the psalmist prays that, he's pleading with the Lord to understand him. And that's the great thing about the God of the Bible, is that the Lord who made us knows us. And the word to know means to know by experience. Okay, And... You might argue from the Old Testament, if you think about it, like here you have God, he makes man, and, and then man sins, and, and they have all the grief and the heartache and the ruin that comes with sin. And you'd say, well, how can a God who is holy ever know that? Like, how can he experience that, right? And you might not be able to say, Lord, you, you really don't know my life. But you know, on this side of the cross, you can't say that. On this side of the incarnation, you can't say that. Because God said, I'm going to know what it's really like for you. And he put on flesh. And he was born in Bethlehem's manger. And he had to grow in a world filled with hurts and harm and evil and all the things and the worries that come. And Jesus experienced it all. The Bible says that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses... You can put in your weakness in there, whatever it is. You're only as good as your weakest point. He knows it. But was in all points, and I say again, was in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
So he knows our anxieties and our worries, and he knows what it's like to live in a world like we live in and be here and feel everything we feel, everything, and yet without sin. That's the kind of person I need, someone who can understand where I am. And, you know, he goes on in Hebrews 7, in this whole idea of the priesthood, by so much more, Jesus had become a surety of a better covenant. Good thing. Look what it goes on to say. It says, also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So, in other words, earthly priests had a lifespan. And that always does, you know, affect us. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, you know, if you have a goal in your life and you want to do this and do that, the one problem with things is that there has to be an end goal of leaving this life because eventually it'll happen, all right, one way or the other. Because we have a lifespan, some young, some old. But he, that's Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. See, he knows us and he's unchangeable. He's the Lord of glory forever. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him or come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then it goes on, for such a high priest was fitting for us. When the psalmist says, know me, try me, we now can say, thank you, God, that you do know us because we have a high priest who fits us because he was us, is us, yet without sin. Harmless, undefiled, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. I love it. The Apostle Peter wrote, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Care there is anxieties, your worries, your heartaches, your you you name it, you know? He cares for you. Verse twenty four. And see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I love that. Because this psalm leads, you know, goes from the perspective of who God is to judging the right, the, the judging the wicked, and then going to the personal heart, the one who's singing this and writing this and saying, now look at me, search me, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And by the way, there's two parts of that, right? First, search me out, and then lead me. And I'm thankful that God does not leave us to just mope around in our sin, right? I mean, it's sort of, remember the, the monastic way, monks would lock themselves up in you know, monasteries or in a cave or something like that, and, and they would you know, say, woe is me, I'm a sinner, and, all, and almost never have victory over sin. And, and there was a movement in Christianity for that, the monasticism it was called, and, and that we need to punish ourselves for our sin, and a lot of people like to live their whole life like that, with the weight of sin on them, punishing themselves for their sin, and they can't ever achieve forgiveness. 
Because it won't. Someone was already punished for your sin. And that is a path. That's a path of faith. And it's lead me into the way of everlasting. That's everlasting life. That's salvation. And as we read in the book of Hebrews, he sacrificed once for all. And when you come to the realization that that was enough to take everything and my sin, and it's done, it's finished, what a freeing experience that is. And so the psalmist leaves us with that. He says, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jeremiah does the same thing when he says in chapter 17, verse 9, there it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer to that, who can know it, is only the Lord. And I would go further and say the incarnate Lord because he put on a heart of flesh and he knows what it's like to have a conscience and to have all those things. He knows what it's like to think as a man would think and to be a man. This morning, I think Ron Grossman was talking about Ezekiel and he referred to Ezekiel 36, talking about national, um, the, the nation of Israel and He says this, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm reminded again that that's what God wants. He wants us to have a new heart and he wants that new heart to be exercised in the sense of of putting off the works of the flesh, right? Putting on the new man. And that's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament, put on Christ. And I've always thought about that, putting off and putting on, right? Just like when your clothes get dirty, hopefully you take those off and put them in the wash or whatever you have to do. But you wouldn't just go and leave the house without anything on, I hope, right? So as a Christian, it's the same way spiritually. Put off the works, but put on Christ. And he'll never leave you naked. He'll clothe you with his radiance, his glory. And it's an everlasting way, isn't it? Well, I didn't have time to go much further, but I want to look, um, I don't know if I'll have time next week or or want to, but uh, looking at the topic of hate, and and is there, because there's a lot of times the Bible talks about hate and how God hates, and there's several verses out there, and what does that mean, and I'll see if I can work up a little more of a message on that if if we have time for that, but let's pray. God, we come before you, and I... I'm just reminded again that you are the only one that truly loves perfectly, completely, and can at the same time hate sin completely, (laughs) perfectly. And Lord, that you will judge perfectly. And Lord, as we are reminded too that we are to pray that first and foremost we pray for those that Lord are are committing evil against you and are sinners and that they truly would find, many would find salvation and mercy and forgiveness and grace, all of those things wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have that message. And Lord, we were, we're believers. Lord, I, I know we were once on that course and we have found a new way, the way of the cross, the way of Christ, the way everlasting. Help us to be pointing people to Jesus this week. I pray this in his name. Amen.